0: 2023. This is the first show of 2023 and if you're confused and wondering where you are, you are on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 Brattleboro, your community radio station. I don't know how how hard you partied for, you know, New Year. You might still be coming down from that. Um, Many people were happy to say goodbye to 2022, right guys? Um, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor. Emily Kornheiser who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro and drumroll the new chair for the Ways and Means Committee so welcome and congratulations Emily.
1: Thank you it's so good to be here with the two of you and kicking off the new biennium.
0: And yes the 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 first show of the season to talk about um what lies ahead for the biennium would not be complete without journalist John Walters from the Vermont Political Observer. So thank you, John, for being here today.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So I want to dive in. I know we the the session opened uh, or the State House opened this week. The governor gave his inaugural address, so a lot is happening. But where I want to dive into first, is to talk about committees, because I know, especially for John, last year we had a lot of folks decide they weren't going to run for re-election. A lot of them were in leadership positions um, on on the committees where most of the work on policy actually gets done. Um, and I know, John, you have been watching that closely. So yeah. committees have been announced. What are you thinking?
2: Uh, well, I'm looking forward to the... Uh, to. What the uh, new chair of Ways and Means does with <laughs> with her responsibilities? I to be to be perfectly honest, Ways and Means has often been kind of a damper on uh, legislation. Uh, they have to you know they have to pass a lot of the bills that um, that require spending, uh, and um, it's kind of been it's kind of tended to be a moderating influence on policy. And um, I'm sort of curious how uh, the new chair will will sort of handle that.
0: So are, are you saying, John, that you're expecting Emily to just like rip the Band-Aid off of all sorts of things? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't think most people would describe
2: moderation as one of my character traits,
1: <laughs> but. There,
2: there is a responsibility that comes with being chair of especially yes, money. Yes. It, it does. <clears throat> But how you know how do you think you're going to approach that?
1: Um, well, you know, I think that what sometimes appears to the moderating role of the committee or um, the chair, I think, is a lot just like sort of process pieces, right? It's the, the ways and means committee is often the last stop before a bill hits the floor, yep. and so sometimes we're asked to hold the entire caucus or the entire chamber's thinking in our little room while things get worked out. Um, and so I guess I'm looking forward to seeing how I do do that, John. I've, <laughs> um, you know, it's all new to me. I'm coming into it with like a lot of real curiosity about how, how it will feel, how I'm gonna get it done. I know I'm a very, um, I have a very different personality than the last chair who I think did an exemplary job in a lot of ways um, and taught me very well. And I don't, you know, I really don't know. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm hoping to do it with a lot of collaboration and transparency and curiosity.
2: Yeah. And- You you were vice chair of the committee. So you were sort of being being, uh, prepared for the job.
1: Yes. Yes,
2: absolutely.
0: That helps. Um, you know, you you and I, Emily, have talked a lot about uh, taxes and tax structure and how it how taxes can be progressive or regressive. Um, how do you think you'll you'll be able to bring some of those concepts into your work in the committee room, um, or is it even appropriate? Like, do you even have that kind of power?
1: Um, I think almost all power in the state house is soft power. Um, even the speaker, I mean, you know, if we see what's happening in Washington, right? Like this, no one has absolute power. It's really like sort of where you can bring people and what conversations you're able to have. I, I'm i hoping that my love for the philosophy of taxes and for having conversations about what, what sufficiency looks like and what it means to contribute towards shared goals um, can be part of a broader conversation we have as a state about that and or at least as a chamber about that um and so you know there's a lot of strategies for how to get things done in the state house and one of them is like you just you know you slide stuff through um and that certainly works and i have seen it when reporting some extraordinarily boring bills how <laughs> how much you can get done if you just use just the right boring voice tone right Um, and I think sometimes it's valuable to bring people in and to really help them see the big picture of why you're doing something. Mm
2: -hmm. There's been a lot of kind of, I don't know, uh, inertia or maybe reluctance to tackle the tax structure in Vermont. I mean, it's been 12 years now since we had the blue ribbon commission on taxes that, uh, that called for a pretty significant overhaul of the tax system. Uh, to modernize it and make it more fair. And uh, that Blue Ribbon Commission report is probably sitting on a shelf in your committee room uh, gathering dust. Um, Well, we
1: actually have a new committee room, so nothing is gathering dust right now. (laughs) Um, We have 12 members instead of 11 members. We actually had to move rooms to a larger room. And um, so nothing is dusty at all anymore. Okay. But, um, you know,
0: I think that's sort
1: of one of the... What
0: metaphorical dust.
1: Yes. I think that one of that's one of the things, though, about sort of like the subtly moving things through rather than making a big splash. A lot of the recommendations in the Blue Ribbon Commission actually have been enacted. Hmm. Um, We did, you know, massive corporate tax reform. We have the slew of tax credits we passed last year really changed a lot of the income thresholds for a lot of things in terms of the full picture for people. We are chipping away at education, property taxes, and those conversations. Um, And so I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to digging into those more um, and perhaps making some mistakes with my um, megaphone
2: as (laughs) we go along, yeah. Yeah
0: so john when you look at the lineup of committees was there anything that surprised you any um or any that you're really excited about
2: uh well i i'm i'm excited to see what emily does with the job um i i'm interested to find out more about some of the committee shuffling that happened um some of the house committees have new responsibilities or they've been divided up differently. That's right. That's right. Uh, The natural natural resources is no more. Uh, It's duties have been subdivided. So now there's what used to be energy and technology is now energy and environment. Um, Military affairs was shunted from house general to house government operations. Mm. Uh, and You know, and its new chair, I should say, is another one I'm, I'm eager to watch. Uh, Mike McCarthy um, from St. Albans um, is a pretty progressive voice as well. And DevOps has not been known as a, a font of progressivism in the past. Uh, so that'll be interesting. But uh, I have heard, I've seen, you know, the, the committee changes have been reported, but I haven't seen anything about Why they were done the way they were, Um, and like there was no mention. You know, energy and technology became energy and environment. So did they still have technology? Mm -hmm. Or yeah.
1: So, and I can answer some of those. Is it helpful for me to try to like dig into some of that? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So um, I'm going to start with the GovOps, House, General, and Military Affairs split up because I think that one's the easiest to explain. Actually, so. House general and military affairs had all labor law, all housing policy, and then general and other things, which is like burial. It's just like, you know, wild stuff comes through there. And then military affairs. Um, And so military affairs and liquor and lottery moved over to GovOps. GovOps already had cannabis. So that's putting sort of that sort of regulatory bucket of sin into one <laughs> place right um military affairs is a government operation so i think that just makes like a lot of natural sense and it tends to be something that sort of spikes up in needing attention and then calms back down again with regard to our guard um and GovOps tends to do a lot of those you know redistricting big deal sometimes doesn't need any attention the rest of the time right right um, And so they are taking on all that so that there can be more attention to housing.
2: Mm -hmm. We all know
1: why we need to do that one. Um, Mm -hmm. And then labor law as so much as changing in our labor market. So that feels like an exciting divide to me. Like the portfolios have evened out a little bit and um, make more sense about where they are. The other three, and then technology. So, and then the other three that became two Um, I think the divide between agriculture and land use and environment has been confusing to a lot of folks for a long time. And it's been often um, at odds Mm -hmm. with each other, which is not very helpful because most farmers that I know, at least, um, are deeply invested in having a Vibrant, long term, climate resilient landscape, and tend to know more about what that takes than a lot of other places, um, and have a stake in what we do around pollution, right? Um, and so, in, engaging in climate really explicitly when we're talking about food access, food systems, and agriculture all makes sense, right? Um, and then having sort of climate energy use, climate change altogether, because so much of what we need to do for climate now is around like recalibrating our grid and all of those issues. Um, So that all sort of makes sense to me. Technology is going to a few different places. Um, So I think like consumer technology goes to commerce because they handle consumer affairs. Talk, which is the Joint IT Oversight Committee. Um, Really fun one. Mm -hmm. But sort of all of the things they do around the Agency of Digital Services and that universe, that goes to GovOps because that is a government operation, right? Um, And then broadband, the broadband universe, I think is dividing between institutions and somewhere else. Mm,
0: okay.
1: Because there's a lot of bonding connected to that and bonding is in corrections and institutions.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they, uh, the communication union districts are going to be transitioning. At least some of them are sometime this year from, uh, they, will, they will start using up the, the grant money that flowed from the federal government through the uh, broadband board uh, and through the legislature and uh they are going to have to start borrowing money Mm -hmm. so that that will become a big piece of the broadband uh uh, picture uh very probably within the next year
0: so and for listeners give a pause on on this quickly i just want to give a huge shout out to dv fiber which is the uh, communication union district here uh in southern vermont um windham county uh they are hooking up. They are in the process of hooking up their first homes in Readsboro. Uh, I saw this Manor, week, right? I believe it's this week. Yep, I saw Anne Manor Anne Manwaring, who's been deeply involved in one of your former colleagues in the Statehouse, house, Emily, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's what she said. So, congratulations, folks in Readsboro, and congratulations to all the hard work and many, many hours of volunteer time that has made that possible. So. Shout out to them. Thank you. And,
1: and uh, if folks want to I'm, go into the Wayback podcast machine, a couple months ago, we talked to Christine Holquist about the work of um, that's happening statewide and sort of how the federal money and the state money are coming together.
2: Yeah. I, I do some volunteer work for CV Fiber, which is the Central Vermont CUD, mm-hmm. and uh, they have not started hooking up homes yet, but they did start actual construction in mid-December. Uh, and they're busily at work, uh, getting as much done as they can before, you know, if, if winter comes again. Uh, <laughs> it's I have it's to pause.
0: in Whitingham right now.
2: <laughs> it's uh, always winter in Whitingham.
0: <laughs> oh, right. Silly me.
2: <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're sort of celebrating, uh, you know, moving from planning and conceptualization to actually running a communications network.
1: And what that means is we actually need a little bit, we need less legislative attention to it at this point. Like we put something in place and now we're monitoring it. We're not creating a whole system anymore. And so we don't need an entire committee devoted to creating that system.
2: Yeah. Good point.
1: Other other committee things that were exciting to you, John, or curious.
2: Well, there's one from the Senate, which uh, <laughs> uh, is outside of your remit, obviously, but, um, uh, the committee on committees in the Senate, which chooses the committee chairs and, and the committee membership, uh, put—they um, customarily have at least one have one token Republican chair, uh, and it was Joe Benning before in institutions, and now it's going to be Russ Ingalls, and I find mm-hmm. that to be a curious choice because I, you know, he is one of the most conservative people in the state house, um, and um, I. You know, Joe Benning is a very conservative fellow, but he also was willing to, he also saw the value in doing government right. Um, And I wonder, I mean, I I wonder, they didn't have many good choices because the Republican caucus in the Senate is small. And it basically consists of people who are kind of lifers and stuck where they are and people who just got there. Um, So in some ways, Senator Ingalls was kind of the best choice, but, uh, he seems to be ideologically, um, if he's as conservative as chair as he is otherwise, uh, that could be kind of a bumpy, bumpy ride. I think there is some time, and I have like no inside
1: knowledge of this whatsoever. So this is just me like speculating out of my mouth, but, um, I, You know, sometimes there's a strategy that moving folks into greater leadership in order to have a moderating influence on them. Um, And I'm curious to see if that happens with him.
2: Could be. Um, The other thing to note about the Senate, there weren't nearly as many committee chairs leaving the Senate as there were in the House. But um, with 10 new members in the Senate, um, the new committees in the Senate have a lot of vice chairs who are young. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a couple more uh, younger uh, chairs, but a lot of people who are moving up very quickly uh, think particularly of Nader Hash from your backyard, Mm -hmm. uh, who is going to be vice chair of judiciary, and that's a big hefty committee. And, you know, the, the longtime chair, Dick Sears, is not getting any younger. And, you know, he, you know, I, I could see, a, you know, Senator Hashim being the chair of judiciary in two or four years. And I think that's going to be very exciting. Um, he brings a progressive outlook on judicial issues and law enforcement issues and his experience as a former state trooper mm-hmm. uh, and a I person So, um, i looking forward to that and looking forward to some of the younger people getting a chance to move up and getting a chance to learn the ropes and, and move into leadership as more of the old guard, uh, you know, retires.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Senator Hashim is reading for the law now. Um, I was going to ask if, if
0: he's, yeah. Yeah.
1: So he'll be an attorney soon. Um, and then Senator Hardy is the new chair of government operations. Yes.
2: Yeah, and that's um, that's going to be, uh, I, I haven't talked to her, but, um, you know, um, uh, Jeanette White retired. She was the chair of government operations for a long time. And uh, uh, my feelings about her are <laughs> well documented. Um, uh, she was uh, not a terribly progressive person and not a terribly original thinker, and she was very uh, jealous of the prerogatives of elected officials, um, which, you know, she was kind of a barrier to a lot of things in, um, you know, campaign finance and ethics, uh, mm-hmm. and that sort of bailiwick, which I have a particular interest in because I cover politics. Uh, and she was, you know, kind of a, a roadblock a lot of the time. And, um, you know, be interesting to see how Senator Hardy and Representative McCarthy, you know, two new chairs for GovOps, mm. see how those committees move forward from here.
1: I'm really, you know, Senator Hardy is one of the hardest working, most organized people in the building. And so I'm and I'm really curious to see one, just like stylistically so different from Senator White, um, in terms of just how she conducts herself, will run a meeting, will bring new issues to the fore. And I think is one of the more um, sort of rigidly, ethically bound folks in the building as well. Um, she's much, you know, she's very conscientious about relationships with lobbyists, with what kind of employment folks have, if they're serving, how contributions are taken. Um, and so, I'm yes, I'm very curious to see how that piece of the puzzle falls out. And she's very, very active in, um, conversations around legislative compensation and what that means for who can
2: serve and how Mm -hmm. yeah yes and she uh came to the senate after having been the founding director of emerge vermont
1: she was not the founding director actually she was was the second director director Mm
2: -hmm.
1: she was the director when i went through emerge (laughs) though.
2: special (laughs) spot in my heart for that and (laughs) apparently she learned the lessons too so Hmm.
0: Yeah. Um. I'm. One thing we've talked about in previous shows, John and Emily, is, you know, what will it mean with so much turnover? Uh, what will it mean as far as training people to step into these new roles of legislators, committee chairs, uh, the whole, the whole nine yards? Um. Any thoughts on that? Have what are you what are you anticipating are you seeing like workshops and how to train people get people prepared so they can be successful that type of thing
1: i have a four-hour chairs training this afternoon
0: Ooh, lucky you (laughs)
1: really curious to see what we're gonna learn um and looking forward to it i think um i i really love a good training and i really hate a bad training so i'm you know very curious about that um (laughs) Yesterday, we had like a very thorough, the full chamber had a very thorough decorum training Um, and like really went, you know, the new members had a week-long training already that got rave reviews, which has not happened in previous new member trainings. Um, the new head of legislative council and the new head of JFO put a lot of energy into revamping the curriculum mm, and nice. updating the curriculum. And I think it really paid off folks were very happy with it and felt very supported um and so yesterday we had you know an hour with the clerk to talk to us about sort of floor procedures um and do some level setting there today we have sexual harassment training and something i don't know what the second one is there's sort of two trainings and then in committee and i don't know if the senate is doing all of this i sort of doubt it but um it's sort of easier to just elbow someone to tell them they're doing something wrong in the Senate.
0: Right. So there's fewer of them.
1: Yeah, but it's sort of extra. So we've, um, you know, just like one little, pe- you know, we have more than 50 new members in the house and there's this very funny, they, um, they clap for too long. <laughs> I know that sounds very silly, um, but you have that many people and like anything can build momentum. Right. Um And so the difference between like one person claps a little bit at something and then all of a sudden, like a full clapping takes on. And then when do you clap for just two minutes? And when are you doing like a full scale? And when is there a standing ovation versus not a standing ovation? And you're both laughing at me and you think it's silly, but that kind of stuff can take up like an extra hour if it gets out of control by the end of the day. Like we do a lot of ceremonial clapping in that room. Mm -hmm. And so there's like really funny things like that that even like require some degree of um, collaborative conversation and training. Um, And then in committees, I think, you know, even Ways and Means, which tends to not have a lot of turnover, has a decent number of new members. And so we're doing a lot of, um, like the first two weeks are really gonna be like slow start, I'll say. It's gonna be a slow start
0: but yeah. i that i'm glad to hear all that because um i i think in a lot of folks minds to be a a leader in politics you just have to get elected um and we don't think about the the other skills it takes to like sit through a committee meeting, understand policy, understand procedure. Like that's another skill set beyond just getting elected. Um, and yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember at the polls there was um someone there who was running for office, who I will not name, um, who was not elected, but was feeling like super duper stir crazy, like in our little fenced off standing by the polls area and was like pacing and wanting to go out with a ribbon. And I was like, you do know that, like being elected, means you. The, it's really just like sitting in a chair for twelve hours a day, right? Like,
0: <laughs> and reading a lot of words.
1: <laughs> like the job is really just like sitting in a chair for twelve hours a day.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, um, I we have a couple like- minutes before the end of this um, part of the show, John. What do you want to leave listeners with, or what are you what are you sitting with right now?
2: I did want to mention one more committee chair uh, mm-hmm. thing that interests me, and that is that both of the House money committees have new chairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane Lanfer uh, from Virgin's uh, mm-hmm. is the new chair of House Appropriations. So and those two committees work pretty closely together or in parallel. Um, and, uh, you know, that's going to be a big transition uh, for for the House money operations and for the, uh, you know, uh, for the fiscal operations there.
1: And, you know, Diane um, isn't a new chair. So she was chair of transportation last session, and she was on appropriations for a long time before she became the chair of transportation. Mm -hmm. And so she has a lot of um, both practice chairing and institutional knowledge of how appropriations works. That's not to say that there's not going to be like a lot of new dynamics with the two of us, you know, who really like each other and work together very well, but like learning to work together in this new way, dynamics with the Senate, um because there's a lot of collaboration sort of among the men- money chairs in the Senate and the House. Um so definitely new dynamics there. But I'm I'm grateful that she has the chairs experience and, you know, as we as we find our way
2: together. Yes. And I imagine as we go to the second hour, second half hour of uh, the happy hour, uh, we'll probably turn our attention to uh, the governor's uh, inaugural address.
0: Yes. Uh, Yep. Got some things to unpack there, I think, don't you? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, uh, the Mount Peel, your happy hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro is going to hear from some of our underwriters, but we will be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV and on many of the public access stations around Vermont and even a little bit across New England. We thank all our folks for tuning in on the TV as well as our podcast. You can find us um, on Apple Podcasts and wherever. Uh, actually, we're on a number of places you find podcasts, but Apple is the, probably the easiest one to subscribe to, I think.
1: I just found uh, us on Spotify the other day. I don't think I, I know, really right? remember we were there. Yeah.
0: Yep. I had no idea we were on Spotify and I found us there the other day too. So <laughs> yes, we are, we are slowly eking into the podcast universe. Um, if you're just tuning in, I am your host and producer of the show, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor. Emily Kornheiser, who is a representative for the state in the state house, as well as journalist John Walters, who is the chief cook and bottle washer behind the Vermont Political Observer website, which is a really great read, folks. We highly recommend it. So John, the governor gave his inaugural speech yesterday. What yes. are your takeaways? I'm dying to hear these. I don't know about you, Emily, but.
1: Well, I, I just want to say, you know how I was talking about that clapping problem that we- <laughs> Oh include, my gosh, yes.
0: Of? Yes, many ca- clapping problems last night or yesterday. A lot I mean, of clapping. A
1: little too much <laughs> clapping happened last night <laughs> by accident. Okay, John, over to you on the clapping.
2: Well, I, I, I did write a blog post, which is up. Um, and uh, I, my opening was that, the best part of the whole event was uh, Francois Clemens singing the National Anthem.
1: I cried and I texted my mama and I then I got a picture with him later. I am like... Oh, I'm jealous.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was the
1: highlight. That really was.
2: I was just joining us. He is. He's best known as uh, Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but he's also like this multi-talented creative force. And I'd never heard him sing before. And it was just amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it comes at about the 28 minute mark in the uh, um, Vermont public uh, archived video of the event, if anybody wants to try and find it. Um, Highly recommended. Um, uh, The governor's actual inaugural address uh, wasn't quite so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) It was, in fact, it was, it was, more inclusive than he has been at times in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he actually mentioned as priorities, things like, um, you know, mental health, Mm uh, and opioids. It wasn't all the usual, you know, workforce, economic development, you know, growing Vermont kind of stuff that was in there. Um, at the same time, um, there were, he put up a lot of guardrails and they're Mm -hmm. the same old guardrails, you know, he's, He's against any new taxes. He's against a you know universal paid family and medical leave program. Um, you know he is. He talked about climate change, but he did not go beyond what he was willing to accept before, which is which was like EV chargers. Like it was yeah. not. Yeah, he yeah, talked chargers.
0: a lot about EVs and yeah.
2: charging stations. <laughs> yeah, he's he's excited about that. He's actually uh, his his official vehicle now apparently is a uh, Ford F-150 Lightning, which is the new uh, electric pickup truck. Um, he said that, you know, he enjoyed riding around in it, although he'd prefer to drive, uh, which he can't as governor. Um, and he then said his best line of the day, uh, which is, <laughs> I'm sure many of you are looking forward to me driving again as well. Um, but it, it was... You know, it was pretty much the same old Phil Scott uh, and, you know, putting up the, the warning signs that, um, you know, if the Democrats in the legislature go too far in his definition, you know, he's he's going to veto stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, that could cause this could be the most contentious biennium of his time in office, because the federal aid that we got during COVID years. Not that COVID has gone away, um, uh, that money is drying up, and it has helped state governments stay afloat uh, during you know during the pandemic. And money is going to get tight pretty soon here, and uh, you're going to have have to look at a lot of programs that were started during COVID. That there's a still need for some of them, for many of them. Uh, there are a lot of competing interests uh, and um, there's not a lot of resources. So this um, this uh, isn't a good time to be the new chair of a money committee. Uh-
1: <laughs> it's an important
2: time to be the new chair of a money committee. Yes, that's right. Um, so, you know, it's uh, he set himself up. I mean, he wasn't combative or argumentative in the address he was inclusive no, he was
1: passive aggressive is what he was
2: yeah but <laughs> nothing near his usual standards of you know uh he, he's a very passive aggressive person and, oh
1: i actually i found this to be more passive aggressive than previous speeches so i am so let me point out some of the passive aggressive digs i found in there yes. mm-hmm. let's go for um, it, yeah. and you know for Brattleboro got a shout out and we do have a um, we don't have enough EV charging spots in Brattleboro. And so thank you. I agree on that part of the speech. Um, They're
0: probably too slow. Yes.
1: Yes. We do have a Tesla charging station that like has no shortage of spots, but that can only be used by Tesla drivers, which is like a regulatory nightmare that that's true. Okay. Onwards. Um, There was all of that talk about opioids but he vetoed a comprehensive bill to look at all that we've done on opioids and he even mentioned the good work that had happened under Shumlin which I thought was like marginally generous and how we need to step back and look at it again the bill that was designed to like look at the hub and spoke system which is what was designed under Shumlin was the bill he vetoed Mm, good point um
2: the uh, the the bit about law enforcement.
1: That's my next one. That uh, was he like.
2: So he, he talked, talked about, about- in- accountability and law enforcement, and then he dragged the liberals through the mud. You know, mm-hmm. it's like he didn't mention that there are any there are no problems with policing in the state. It's all like you know um, reformers uh, who have made it harder to be a cop and are driving people out of law enforcement. And you know uh, these well-meaning in these well-meaning reforms that have unintended consequences. So he talked about accountability, but it, the accountability is all on uh, Democrats and progressives, uh, not on. And police. he
1: blamed crime increases on expungements,
2: yes, which
1: is a bill that he signed and has had. We've had broad success and agreement on for years and years. Um, youth changing the age of um, prosecution of a youth. Um, he talked about gang violence related to, I mean, he really like, there was a lot of, that part was like, he wants to roll back a decade worth of criminal justice reforms. It's not that he doesn't want us to do anything new. Mm-hmm. So there's another like, like you know, quite aggressive dig um, that was in there. What else? I didn't take notes because I was getting a little fiery, and I, <laughs> I like, toned it down in there. Um, yeah. So. There was, there was oh, a- Act Two Fifty. That was the other oh, one. Yes, Is that Act like Two Fifty. Yeah. Yes, that you know we, and yes, of course there are need we need to have reforms to Act Two Fifty. He vetoed that bill.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, and it's not like, he's the way he put it is that uh, uh, regulatory reform is the one and only solution to our housing shortage, and nonsense.
1: It's nonsense, and no one thinks that's true. And then he did this whole, oh, I'm like really ranting now. Um, Then there was this whole long thing about how like he went to Island Pond and he talked to like a real Vermonter who was upset at him. And that we, the legislature needs to need to spend more time, more closely talking to the Vermonters who don't come to fundraisers because they're the real and they're just so busy making a living. They can't talk to us. I'm like, that's my line, buddy. Like, you can't go stealing my line. Like, yes, we're House members. We represent so few people. We know how to talk to them like who were you? You went on this, like anyway, like it was all in this context of this. Like he went on this one day tour of every county. How long do you think he spent in each county if he went to every single one of them in a day? And when he came to Windham County, he went to Londonderry and Londonderry only. Like, what? Oh, so passive aggressive.
2: Uh, one other thing that that wasn't really passive aggressive, but it kind of got to me was there was a lot of framing of issues in terms of. Of helping rural Vermont yes. and not urban Vermont.
1: I appreciated your part of the
2: column on that, John. And, and yes, there are issues that face rural Vermont, and rural Vermont in many ways has been left behind. But our cities have big issues too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them are caused by growth and expansion. You know, Burlington ha- has good economic development, but they have a woeful housing shortage and they have traffic problems. And they have increasing problems with, uh, you know, a small group of lawbreakers who are uh, causing trouble over and over again. Um, and, you know, that's that's the good city. He also put places like Rutland and St. Johnsbury in that bucket. Mm-hmm. And that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, most of our cities have their struggles, including Brattleboro. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um we can't we can't turn our attention solely to rural vermont at the expense of urban vermont that's that's a false dichotomy Mm
0: -hmm. you know what i found so fascinating about that that theme is he i don't know if this was intentional or not but there was this weird kind of like jumping across um a stream like if if rural vermont was on one side and and urban vermont's on the other he was like jumping back and forth between between this theme of we have to have solutions that are crafted to each town yet not wanting government interference yet given vermont's weird um and this is me more than anything he said given vermont's um really tough mathematics around economies of scale um how did he think any of those solutions were going to be found if if the state's not involved because quite often the state is where the economy of scale is found um and so it just it's like he wanted his cake and to eat it too and yet there was no oh. yeah Uh, There was no actual way forward from that. It just, it, it felt like this weird limbo for me.
2: Uh, I'll mention one other thing and maybe Emily also has more, but um, he touched on a theme that he has adopted in the last year or so, which is that, you know, he, he took office in 2017, COVID hit in March of 2020. Uh, His, His definition, his his description of his tenure in office is that all his policies were starting to work and were solving Vermont's problems. And then COVID hit and it all got thrown up in the air. And now we're recovering and we can get back on track with all the good work that Phil Scott was doing to solve all our problems. Uh, and I'm sorry, but that's nonsense as well. Uh, you know, we had our problems before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And his solutions are incremental at best. Um, and
0: and a lot of the problems COVID caused were not new. They yeah, just COVID, COVID exacerbated
2: them and made them more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there wasn't really that much new. In fact, you know, we... Uh, not that COVID is good news, but, you know, we truly benefited greatly from all the federal relief that flowed into Vermont. Uh, Mm -hmm. it was much easier, not only easy that helped us manage the pandemic, it made it much easier to govern. You know, you Mm -hmm. didn't have big budget fights because you had plenty of money sloshing around, or at least they were a lot smaller budget fights than they were before. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the idea that COVID threw everything up in the air and that now we can get back to the Phil Scott, uh, you know, uh, plan um, is uh, is a nice uh, way to describe it for him, but it's not true.
1: The other um, sort of thread he's been pulling for a long time around this population shortage and the need to attract new people. We had some of the highest pop- in migration and population growth in the country this last Couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and for I some see. reason, those numbers were like not part
2: of the, not yeah. part of the narrative. And, and the in migration that we're having is enough to, you know, put our housing stock under extreme stress. Uh, so, you know, even if we were able to, to welcome thousands of new people into Vermont tomorrow, uh, they would have nowhere to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. <laughs>
0: Well, and of course, Emily and I um, spoke with Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute um, at the last week. And, you know, she said once again, wages are an issue in Vermont. And Mm -hmm. he did not really go there.
1: No, but fortunately, he also didn't talk about affordability. Oh, no, he did. He He actually did did talk about affordability. He did. He talked about
2: taxes and uh, fuel costs.
1: Yes. The specter of inflation. And yes, I was also, this is totally petty, but um, he talked about the price of eggs Yep, and I buy eggs every week. I buy our local organic eggs every week. Cause I think we all know that's the kind of person I am. And that's the kind of groceries I buy. Um, no big surprises there, but my local organic eggs are five fifty to $6 a dozen. And he was talking about a dozen eggs costing more than five dollars, and I was like, "I think it's really interesting that Phil Scott's also buying local organic eggs. Which, like, I'm happy for him and for Vermont agriculture that he's doing that. But it's like, generally, when you talk inflation, you don't talk about like sort of your premium items as um, the prices.
2: It was a little bit like uh, Doctor Oz's crudité platter.
1: He did have that. Yeah,
2: except that Phil Scott sells it a lot better.
0: <laughs> yeah. This, this is true. This is true. So for both of you, you know, the, the governor has said his piece in his inaugural address. What do you think this portends for the rest of the session?
1: It seemed to me that it's just going to be more of the same as last year, but with a totally different house and a totally different Senate having that conversation. So, um, You know, I think he signaled what the budget and the budget adjustment is going to look like. And I think they're going to be like almost identical to proposals he was pushing last round, you know? Um, I think when he was talking about infrastructure and small towns, he was like talking about this tiny policy idea he has called mini TIFFs, which are like really unfeasible for most small towns and um, won't raise the revenue that they need to do what they need to do. And, um, you know... I have no fee, new fees. We have we haven't updated our state government fees since he took office. And at this point, most Republicans in the House seem interested in a fee bill. Um, but it's very hard to do without the governor. And so we have depart like government departments that are fraying at the edges because they're dependent on fees and aren't getting them anymore. Um And so, yeah, it just seemed like it was more of the same, but I don't know, maybe John, you saw something else in the tea leaves.
2: Well, I think it was more in the tone of it. I I think he, you know, he tried to at least seem uh, conciliatory. You know, he closed with a plea to work together, um, which again, uh, given all his other stuff, uh, didn't mean like, let's meet in the middle. It meant, why don't you all come over and, you know, enact my agenda. (laughs) you know, it'll be what'll be another thing that'll be interesting that we ought, we have to at least mention before we close is that uh, you know the house has a veto-proof majority now, uh, that that isn't as simple as it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very difficult to get you know a hundred plus uh, people on one side of an issue, even if you have you know more than a hundred who are you know ideologically inclined your way, um, but you know the governor if If he is as active with vetoing as he has been in the past, he is going to be overridden a few times, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should change the calculus somewhat. He should be more open to working with the legislature and truly finding common ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, my post before the inaugural was actually a you know my version of what Phil Scott ought to say. And, you know, he ought to have said, you know, let's really work together. And that means me as well as you. And I'm going to open my door and I'm going to be in the house and in the state house. uh, And I'm going to work with leaders and, you know, try to iron out problems before they become, you know, veto threats. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it doesn't seem likely that he's going to suddenly change his uh, stripes uh, (laughs) as he enters his fourth term as governor.
0: Yeah, I, I'm actually having a little deja vu right now in this conversation because when we had this a similar conversation last year after the inaugural address, um, I think we said a lot of the same things. Like it, it feels um, once again, nothing new in, yeah. in the inaugural address. Um, same old, same old going forward.
2: And we'll, we'll get more of the nitty gritty when he delivers his budget address later this month. But I, mm-hmm. I don't hold out much hope that there'll be much creative thinking there either.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the creative thinking would be incredibly useful. Yes. Um, and new policy ideas to solve these problems problems that he's, you know, harps on. Um, And I think we've talked a lot about sort of what happens culturally, if you're always talking about problems and not talking about solutions. Um, But this working together thing is really, you know, he talked about it when he was, you know, all the interviews when he was first elected in November were all about this working together. And this is, you know, he said it a bunch of times in the speech, but if he's not tasking his cabinet to actually work together it's so hard for us to do good work Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it seems like it could solve most of the problems and avoid most of the veto standoffs Mm -hmm. and i i don't know why he does it that way to be perfectly honest except that i think he is For all, his reputation as a nice guy. He is a lot more arrogant than his public image. Mm -hmm. Um, And he certainly governs that way. There is not much wiggle room.
1: And I think, you know, that collaboration would moderate us much more than the vetoes will. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if, you know, with collaboration, things would become moderated as they move along passage but with a veto there's no reason to do that along the way necessarily and then you know there's just a veto override so um yeah Mm -hmm. we'll see we'll see what happens
2: one little bit of history that might be useful here and i my my memories are sort of vague on this but you know jim douglas served four terms and you know he faced a democratic uh legislature and for most of his tenure he kind of, you know, held control um, and was able to move the legislature in his direction quite often. Uh, but in his last term, uh, it kind of changed. And, uh, you know, there were vetoes. Uh, there were overri- overrides on important vetoes, uh, marriage equality in the budget, um, which Republicans still yammer about, that, that that override, you know, put us on a path to fiscal ruin. Um, but, you know... Um, we haven't yet seen the uh, gubernatorial fatigue that uh, that often surrounds a governor when he gets past his third term. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it happened to Jim Douglas. It happened big time to Peter Shumlin. Uh, you would think it's got to happen sooner or later to Phil Scott. And this is going to be this by enemy is going to be a big test of his um, ability to appear like he's, you know, running things and moving in a positive direction. Hmm.
0: That's, that's going to be an interesting thing worth watching. Um, so another time check, we're just at the end of this show. It went really, really fast as it always does when you're, when you join us, John. Um, any... What are your predictions for this legislative session john <laughs> and for uh, our radio listeners as i asked that john's eyes got really big and he kind of like leaned back in his chair yes. like oh olga don't ask me that well,
2: that's the, i mean it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit of a rough session because of all the new people in the house and senate um you know that may sort of impede progress to some extent Um, The big question is, you know, how is House and Senate leadership going to approach this, you know, um, kind of looming ideological standoff with the governor? You know, are they going to push democratic ideas and progressive ideas or are they going to sort of, you know, self-edit? I imagine they're going to pick their fights and I don't know which fights they are prepared to pick at this point. Um, Probably climate is one of them. You know, the governor doesn't seem interested in meeting our 2025 and 2030 targets for emission reductions. Uh, The Democrats are much more interested in adhering to those targets, which are in the law. Um, So, you know, there will be issues where there will be sharper contention, I think, this year because the House and Senate have veto-proof majorities, even if they don't always use them.
0: Thank you. Um, I know Emily needs to get to a meeting. So uh, I will have to sign off. But John, thank you for those predictions. Um, Emily, anything you want to add before we go?
1: No, I, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity when there's change. And I'm looking forward to seeing what we do with the opportunity.
0: Same here. As always, thank you for joining us, beautiful people. This has been the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. We will see you next week. And John, where can people find more information about you if they want to read your work?
2: Well, the uh the blog is called the Vermont Political Observer. Uh the web address is the VPO.org. Um, so that's simple to find. And if you just type in Vermont Political Observer into your search engine, you will you will get me.
1: And Emily? Folks can go to emilycornheiser.org, and you'll find links to all the things.
0: (laughs) Take, Take care, everyone. We will be back here next week.